Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Have you been wanting to try Blue Apron but haven't gotten around to it yet? Well, now's your chance to give it a try with a deep discount. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and you'll get $30 off your first order. Welcome to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. This show is brought to you by my special patrons. Welcome to my newest patron, Molly. If you're interested in supporting the show, patrons at all levels will receive stickers, as well as the option of purchasing anything in the Threadless store at base cost. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love Halloween, so my patrons are also going to receive some special Halloween boxes from me. Simply visit patreon.com slash midnightsunmurder or click the link in the show notes. Now, thanks to all of you who made my last episode on the Wilcox Expedition my most downloaded of this new incarnation. It was one of my favorite cases I've ever covered, so I was glad to hear that it affected a lot of you as well. If you haven't, give it a listen. While it's not true crime, it's still a very interesting story. And as I mentioned on that episode, I'm going to start highlighting a new podcast every new episode at the top of the show so if you want to have yours featured just send it send me a promo and an email and this time around i'm featuring a true crime comedy podcast from the land down under it's the bloody murder podcast hosted by two of my favorite podcast people Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favorite podcatcher. So you guys should definitely give them a listen if you haven't already. I find that they combine comedy with respect for the victims really well. A lot of shows don't do that at all, but they really pull it off. And they're great people, so give it a listen. So sorry I disappeared for a couple of weeks, but I've been... Having a lot of arthritis and carpal tunnel kind of like murder my hands, so it makes it really hard to type. And unfortunately, I'm going to be disappearing for a little while after this episode. I'm going to the desert, so hopefully I will return rejuvenated and feeling ready to get back on a more regular schedule. Tonight's episode is one that you may have heard me cover in the past, but... um. I went back to the bones of the case and completely re-edited everything I previously released. So while it is essentially the same story, I'm telling it in a much different way. But this case has it all. Illicit relationships, a love triangle, a horrifying murder, a victim seemingly without an enemy in the world, and lastly, a very unexpected suspect. This is the case of the murder of Lori Waterman. And this is one of those cases that I would definitely love to hear opinions from listeners on. I have my own opinion, but I will try to stay as objective as possible. Because even though there was a resolution, 
there's still some ambiguity as to the whole story behind the crime. This case took place in Craig, Alaska, which you may remember from my episode on the unsolved fishing vessel investor murders. Well, this is the other famous murder case that came out of that small place. So, a little bit of background. Craig is a very small town with a population of around 1,500 to 2,000. It's located on Prince of Wales Island. This island is southeast of Anchorage and is almost exactly halfway between here and Washington State. It's actually only about 100 miles east of the British Columbia border, so it's quite distant from the bulk of the state. The island it's on is the fourth largest in the U.S. at about 2,200 square miles and is actually one of over a thousand islands in that part of Alaska. It's also considered one of Alaska's rainforest islands. It's part of Tongass National Forest, the largest intact temperate rainforest on the planet at 17 million acres or 68,000 square kilometers. There are many communities on the island, but Craig is the largest and the rest will have populations below 1,000. The town was actually just named after a dude named Craig in the early 1900s, which I don't know why, but I find that hilarious. There's no real story, it's just a white dude named Craig. It has exactly one famous resident. Hugh Hefner's former girlfriend, Holly Madison, was actually born and raised there. And I'm guessing got the hell out as soon as she turned 18. It's a beautiful place populated by fishermen, covered with a huge variety of trees and full of wildlife, including large numbers of bears, wolves, and bald eagles. While it isn't a pretty touristy part of Alaska, it's a lot less accessible than other islands in the area and has maintained a pretty peaceful small town vibe. This case takes place in 2004. Do you remember what you were doing in 2004? If you're anything like Rochelle Waterman, or who am I kidding, me, you may have been writing in your live journal. Back in those ancient days before Facebook swallowed the internet, online journaling was all the rage, and the most popular of these online journaling sites was LiveJournal. You weren't cutting edge unless you had a live journal with an angsty profile picture, and all the better if your username referenced song lyrics in some way. I refuse to tell you just how many of these boxes that mine checked. I was 20 in the year 2004, and myself, and most people I knew, had live journals and regularly used them in much the same way that we currently use Facebook status updates. To present highlight reels of our lives, or alternatively, talk about how much our lives suck. That year, Rochelle Waterman was a 16-year-old girl living in Craig, Alaska and she had a live journal titled My Crappy Life. And like many teenagers, she used it to vent about her life and her family. However, unlike most teenagers, her journal posts would end up being evidence in a homicide trial and would be scrutinized by hundreds of thousands of people. Kind of like a worst nightmare, right? The Watermans were a well-known and well-to-do family in Craig. The father, Carl, was a real estate agent and on the school board and the mother, Lori, was a special ed aide at a local school. On the weekend of November 12, 2004, Rochelle and her dad, Carl, both left Craig. Carl went off on a work trip, and Rochelle went to a volleyball tournament in Anchorage. And since Rochelle's older brother, Jeffrey, was off at college, that left Lori home alone in the family's large, rambling house. Lori was 48 years old, and known throughout the community as a kind and giving person. She donated a lot of her free time to volunteering and helping other people out. The last weekend of her life was no different, and Lori spent Saturday night helping a friend set up for a Chamber of Commerce event. Carl and Rochelle ended up on the same flight back into Craig on Sunday afternoon, and when they arrived home, Lori was nowhere to be seen. Her purse and minivan were also missing, so at first there wasn't any great concern, but when she hadn't shown up within a few hours, Carl called in a missing persons report. When he gave the house a more thorough search, Carl had noticed some things that seemed out of place. 
First, there was an empty bottle of wine on the kitchen counter. Lori didn't drink much, maybe a few times a year. And Carl had never known her to drink alone or to drink a whole bottle of wine in a weekend. Secondly, Carl found a small amount of blood in the couple's bed, as well as a tiny piece of rubber glove, and small fibers that looked like they could have come from a rope. Tragically, there was already an answer to where Lori had gone before her family even knew that she was missing. Early that Sunday morning, a burned-out minivan had been found in an isolated area of the island. Responding officers had made a chilling discovery when they saw that there were human remains inside. Trooper Bob Claus had been at the scene, but he didn't make the connection to Lori until he heard about the missing persons report that night. He actually knew the family quite well, so as soon as he heard about the missing persons report, he got a really bad feeling. And though he wasn't able to make an immediate positive identification, rumors of the body in the burned minivan flew around the island, and by Monday, many people had begun to assume that the body was that of Lori Waterman. There were only a limited number of minivans on the island, and no other missing persons reports, so it wasn't that big of a leap to make. Friends of Rochelle later reported that she had been acting quite strange at school on that Monday exhibiting bizarre mood swings. At the time, her friends thought it was because her mother was missing, but in hindsight, her behavior would seem quite suspicious. That afternoon, troopers decided to talk to Carl. Even though there wasn't a positive ID on the body yet, they had by now been able to identify that the van was Lori's. They didn't want to leave the family hanging when it seemed like a foregone conclusion. There was also indisputable evidence at the scene that pointed to murder. There were signs that an accelerant had been used to burn the van. Law enforcement also knew that the Waterman's house was a potential crime scene, and they wanted to secure it as soon as possible. Even though Lori's family appeared to have concrete alibis, law enforcement also needed to search the house before any potential evidence was either purposefully or accidentally destroyed. Meanwhile, Lori's body was sent to Anchorage for an autopsy. No manner of death could be determined due to the fire having destroyed most of her soft tissue. However, there were enough teeth to positively identify the body as Lori's. Meanwhile, throughout the rest of the community, rumors were flying. As is common in this type of crime, many locals were looking at Carl with suspicion. Even though he had been hundreds of miles away at the time of her murder, some people couldn't help but think he had something to do with it, primarily due to rumors of infidelity that had circulated about him over the years. Detectives, however, were starting to look at a different family member. While searching the Waterman's house, police had come across a love letter to Rochelle from a local 24-year-old man named Jason Arendt. In her initial interview, Detectives questioned her about this, and she admitted that she was friends with Jason and that he had feelings towards her and that it had been a bone of contention between her and her mother. Not only was he nearly a decade older than Rochelle, but he didn't seem to be going anywhere in life. After graduating high school, he had joined the Marines for a short time, but ended up dropping out and getting a job as a janitor in Craig. Detectives also questioned several of Rochelle's school friends, who revealed some intriguing information. While she had generally had a sporty, preppy style throughout her school life, over the last year she had begun to change her style and attitude. She was wearing lots of dark clothing and affecting a more cynical outlook on life. It seemed likely that this was a result of a new group of older friends she had met playing D&D. Several of her new friends were adult men, including Jason, that she hung out with at a local computer store where she had occasionally worked. Apparently, this had caused a lot of friction between Rochelle and Lori. Her friends also informed police of how strangely Rochelle had been acting that week at school. She had been flying between highs and lows very quickly, which was abnormal for her. They suspected she had snuck off to see Jason a few times that week as well. One of the more damning statements that had been made 
was when Rochelle stated that her mom had probably been in a drunk driving accident. And she said this before anyone knew that Lori's minivan and body had been found. She explained that she said this because of the empty wine bottle in her kitchen, but it was an odd leap in logic to make, especially since Lori never ever got drunk and definitely wasn't the type of person to drink and drive. After detectives gleaned all of this extra info from her friends, they decided to interview Rochelle again. They were curious about her relationship with her mother, which she said was great. They'd already heard many stories to the contrary. They also kept after her about her relationship with Jason and brought up the name of another man they'd learned about, 24-year-old Brian Waddell, Jason's best friend and the owner of the computer store where they often hung out. Though she tried to insist they were just her friends, she finally broke down and told them that she'd had sexual relationships with both men. She had actually been involved with both for several months, with a possible overlap, and both men were in love with her. During her long questioning, she admitted that she thought Jason could probably murder someone if he thought it was for a good reason, but that he couldn't have killed her mother because she had called him from Anchorage that Saturday night and they had spoken on the phone for a long time, and this had apparently taken place during the window in which detectives thought the murder had happened. The statement actually completely contradicted a statement that Jason had already given to the police, in which he said that he had gone to Brian's that night, and they had gotten very drunk and both ended up sleeping there. Apparently, Rochelle had not been privy to Jason's alibi, but once she learned about it, she quickly changed her story and said that she hadn't spoken to him on Saturday at all. She also admitted that her relationship with her mother had not been as good as she had initially stated. Rochelle had gotten involved in Wicca, and as a conservative Christian, Lori had not been very accepting of this new lifestyle. Rochelle also said that Lori had been both verbally and physically abusive with her and that this had led to her having severe depression. It's hard to pin down the exact truth in this matter. Everyone else that knew her saw a kind and selfless woman. But as my listeners probably know, some people have a much different personality at home around their family than they do in public. Rochelle said her mom called her fat and ugly regularly, which contributed to her having low self-esteem. She would persist in her abuse claims from the very beginning of the case until the end, several years in the future. Though many would testify to having heard her claims, absolutely no one ever claimed that they had witnessed any of this abuse. However, several of her friends would end up coming forward to state that they had heard Rochelle say that she wished her mother was dead. Eventually, once the second round of questioning had gone on for hours, she decided she didn't want to answer any more questions. The detectives asked if she would wear a wire and go talk to Jason and Brian about the crime, but she refused. This only heightened the detective's suspicion of her. Rochelle's computer had been seized as evidence during a search of the house, and that is how Rochelle's live journal was discovered, and it would only raise suspicions further. She frequently wrote about her anger with her mother and their arguments. At some point in 2004, she started taking Prozac, and, and it appeared to affect her mood in an unexpected way, judging from her live journal. Her language got much more vulgar, she called her mom terrible names, and posted sexually explicit ramblings. She had a lot of teen angst and wrote dark poetry. The week before the murder, though, she seemed really happy and excited to go to Anchorage. Compared to Craig, it must have seemed like a massive city. And like many teenagers in 2004, she was looking forward to shopping at Hot Topic. She had a great time in Anchorage. She was traveling with her volleyball team and they got to stay in a hotel. After she had gotten home at the end of the weekend and she and her father realized Lori was missing, she had updated her blog but didn't mention her mother. She didn't mention her mother until her last post on November 18th which calmly stated, just to let everyone know my mother was murdered, and went on to explain that she wouldn't be able to update for a while because the police were seizing her computer as evidence. This was shocking to her followers, especially how emotionless the post seemed, 
there was no statement of grief or sadness. This coming from a girl who had vented her every emotion on her live journal for a very long time. This post gained a lot of traction, and it would end up receiving tens of thousands of views and comments. Within just a few days of the murder, word had spread throughout town that Jason Arendt was a suspect. And it wasn't too long before the pressure got to him and he broke down and decided to go to the police. He said his friend Brian Riddell had actually killed Lori, and unlike Rochelle, he agreed to get wired up before going to discuss the crime with him. They didn't get a full confession during this uh, event, but they did hear Brian say that he would confess to the murder if Jason and Rochelle were accused. He said he would take the fall for them. The way this was phrased led the detectives to believe that Brian had not acted alone. They didn't believe that Jason was entirely innocent as he claimed. So they questioned him again, and he stated he had spent Saturday with Brian, who had purchased items like duct tape and plastic gloves. Jason insisted that he hadn't known about the murder ahead of time and thought the items were for dressing a deer. He then changed his previous story to say that he hadn't spent the night at Brian's. They had instead parted ways, and Brian called him later and asked for a ride. Jason said he was surprised when Brian met up with him and had Lori's minivan with her body inside, and he had watched Brian set it on fire. They thought Jason's new story was complete bullshit and threatened to arrest him. When faced with the threat of going to jail, Jason changed his story again. He admitted that he had known about the murder and helped plan it. The plan had been spurred on by Rochelle's stories of emotional and physical abuse. Jason stuck by his claim that he had not been involved in the actual murder, but had colluded on it with Brian and was now feeling incredible remorse. He also claimed Rochelle was not involved in the crime and hadn't known anything about it. Law enforcement arrested him and took him to the station where his mother actually worked as a dispatcher. Awkward. The next day, Brian was also arrested and was basically completely open about his role in the murder from the very beginning. He nonchalantly told the police everything. He had broken in through a pet door, and once inside, he waited for about an hour and a half until he was sure that Lori was asleep. The plan was to make her death look like a drunk driving accident. So he woke her up and made her get dressed, and then forced her to quickly consume an entire bottle of wine. He also bound her wrist and ankles with rope. In the process of doing so, he had accidentally ripped off part of his rubber glove and just left it in the bed, along with the small fragments of rope that were later found by Carl. He drove her out to the woods and tried to kill her. Despite being a pretty big guy, he had a hard time killing her. He ended up beating her repeatedly with a flashlight and trying to break her neck but he was unable to kill her. He finally smothered her to death. He then doused her body and the whole vehicle in gasoline and set it on fire. He claimed that even though Jason had met up with him afterwards, he had not participated in the murder. Jason ended up changing his story again to admit that he had actually met up with Brian prior to Lori's murder and that he had actually decided to just watch the murder take place, but it ended up making him too queasy and he couldn't watch till the end. Both men stated that Lori had not resisted at all and seemed really dazed, probably because of the large amount of alcohol she consumed. Less than a week after the murder, law enforcement had two confessions. They felt like they finally had a decently truthful version of the night of the murder. But even with Jason and Brian both insisting that Rochelle knew nothing about it, they weren't entirely convinced. They knew they would have to question her a third time. First, however, Jason had agreed to meet with law enforcement and give them a tour of every stop along the route they had taken during Lori's murder. Jason seemed like a lonely guy that had been looking for an excuse to talk to someone. He was a little bit like that person that starts small talk with you in the checkout line and before you know it, they're telling you their life story. But the officers didn't mind because he was revealing a lot of information. The more he talked, the more he incriminated himself further, 
and for the first time began to incriminate Rochelle. Jason explained how he and Rochelle had met in early 2004 and slowly started a relationship. It was, of course, tough because she was 15 at the time and he was in his 20s. The relationship would end up turning sexual, and Rochelle sent Jason multiple nude photos which detectives would later find on his computer. During their relationship, Rochelle began to tell him about the abuse she got from her mom. By the end of the murder tour, Jason had sold his girlfriend out and told the officers that Rochelle had been in on the murder plot from the beginning and had known every detail along the way. In fact, there had been a few initial attempts on Lori's life, which had failed due to cold feet and bad timing. After these revelations, detectives went to find Michelle and bring her to the station for a third round of questioning armed with this new information. From the get-go, it was obvious this would be more than friendly banter when a detective read Rochelle her Miranda rights soon after they seated themselves in an interview room. The interview ended up lasting several hours, and Rochelle would vacillate between tears, angry cursing at the detectives, complete befuddlement, and background again. She had an explanation for everything, but many of them didn't make much sense. The detectives used a common tactic of exaggerating evidence in an attempt to get a confession or information. They told Rochelle that both men had implicated her in the murder, even though only Jason had actually done so. She reluctantly admitted that she may have mentioned wanting her mom dead at one point, but it was a joke and she never knew that they would take it seriously. She also said that when she was in Anchorage, she had contacted the guys and told them not to carry out the crime and was astonished and heartbroken to come home and find out that it had been done. Basically, she was admitting she had lied to the detectives just a few days prior, but this time she was telling the truth. The detectives continued to push at her, trying to convince her that it would look much better for her if she would just cooperate and be honest. After a few hours of back and forth, she finally began to reveal new information. She admitted she had known about the murder plot from the beginning. And while it wasn't the main focus of all of their conversations, she was often informed by Jason where the guys were at on the plan, what the current plan was, when they would be doing it, etc. And while she said that both men knew that Lori would be alone that weekend, and she had mentioned this would be a good time to do the murder, she was still surprised when she came back and her mom was dead. Once the long interrogation was finally over, the officers formally charged her with murder, conspiracy to commit, and kidnapping. The 16-year-old would be tried as an adult. She was taken into custody that day and her bell was set much too high for her to get out. She was sent to a woman's prison in Juneau while the two men were sent off to a prison in Ketchikan. After several months awaiting trial, both men were offered plea deals, which they accepted in exchange for their future testimony against Rochelle. Brian pled guilty to murder in June of 2005. He was automatically sentenced to 99 years in prison, with his first chance of parole coming after 33 years. With this deal, he has a chance of getting out of prison in his 50s. A few weeks later, Jason made a similar deal. He agreed to testify, of course, as well, and he pled guilty to murder with a sentence of 50 years and possible parole in 16. His was shorter due to his initial cooperation and the fact that he had not participated in the actual murder. He could be out as early as 2021, when he will be in his early 40s. Despite both men initially stating that they loved Rochelle and would do anything for her, less than a year in prison had completely changed their minds. Rochelle did not have the option of a plea deal. She would be sitting in prison until her trial, a wait of about 14 months. Meanwhile, the case had gotten huge publicity. It had been on the cover of People magazine and reached newspapers around the globe. It was one of the first cases where social media played a huge role, and strangers all over the world perused Rochelle's live journal looking for hints of murderous tendencies. Both sides of the case were aware that she would likely not get a fair trial in Craig, where most everyone knew her or her mother personally. It was agreed upon that the trial would be moved to Juneau, a town of 30,000 and a much larger jury pool. 
While awaiting trial, the defense hired a psychologist to interview Rochelle and come up with a psychological profile. After their long interview, in which we would later learn that Rochelle had told many lies, the psychologist painted a picture of Rochelle as a naive and vulnerable girl. Rochelle told the psychologist all the same stories about the alleged abuse and even went further. She claimed that on her way home one time, she had been kidnapped and raped, and when she got home, her mom was just mad that she was late and wouldn't help or believe her. Anyone that really knew Lori would never believe this story. It went completely against her fundamental nature as a caring person. More so, Rochelle had never said anything about this to anyone before, and many believed that she probably made it up on the spot to gain sympathy by playing the victim. The psychologist would explain that Rochelle was scarred from the emotional trauma of developing early. She tried to paint a picture of Rochelle as an innocent and naive little girl. Obviously, Rochelle had neglected to tell her about all of the sexually explicit photos she had sent to Jason. Her many vulgar and explicit live journal entries also made it quite apparent that she was not naive. Her father and brother believed the defense's story completely. They believed the whole plot had been driven by Brian and that Rochelle had been manipulated. Finally, after all of the pretrial hearings were out of the way, the trial was set to begin January 2006 in Juneau. Juneau, which is the only capital that is not accessible by roads, was unaccustomed to hosting explosive murder trials and was not quite ready for the media frenzy that would ensue. Reporters from all over had flown in to cover the trial. However, despite all the publicity the case had received for the previous 14 months, they managed to find a group of jurors that knew little to nothing about the case. During the trial, Rochelle's dad argued for her total innocence though he did admit that Lori had never physically abused Rochelle in any way, as far as he knew, so it seems likely that, if anything, she is a practice liar. The defense's main strategy was to show that there was no physical proof as to Rochelle's knowledge or involvement in the crime. The only two witnesses to her involvement had both pled guilty to murder, so they were automatically untrustworthy. When it came time for Brian to tell his side of the story, he revealed that he and Rochelle had a sexual relationship for the first six months or so of 2004. He would also reveal that he still loved her. This relationship had occurred when Brian was 25 and Rochelle was 15. While relationships between teenagers and adults weren't entirely uncommon in small places like Craig, it must have been startling to those who were following the trial from all around the world that this was deemed somewhat normal there. He also stated, like many other witnesses, that Rochelle had told him many stories of abuse, including getting hit by a baseball bat and her parents threatening to sell her into white slavery. He ended his testimony by calmly telling the jury the story of the night Lori died and that he had planned to make it look like an accident and that he was able to enter her house through an unlocked downstairs window. It was obvious from the details of the crime that he had really thought this through and had done everything to make it look like a drunk driving accident. He revealed that throughout the whole thing, Lori had been completely obedient and had showed no signs of resistance, probably due to a combination of shock and alcohol. Brian also told the grim story of the trouble he had in ending Lori's life. He was unable to break her neck, so he repeatedly hit her with a flashlight, but that didn't kill her. Brian explained that he felt no rage towards Lori. He was just trying to get the murder done quickly and efficiently. He hadn't even said a word to her the whole time. He testified that during the murder, Jason was completely full of hate towards her. He told Lori that she would never fucking hurt Rochelle again. Brian finally managed to suffocate Lori to death and then went about destroying the evidence in the vehicle. He had originally planned to drive the van off a cliff to make it look like an accident, but for some reason, at the last minute, chose to douse the vehicle in gasoline and set it alight, which obviously looked super suspicious. Since he knew that his best friend Jason had sold him out as soon as he could, Brian now felt no qualms in explaining to the courtroom that Jason had actually been the driving force behind the murder. Rochelle may have sparked the idea, but it was Jason who took it on and decided that they had to make it happen.
Brian did his best to minimize Rochelle's involvement in the crime. He claimed that everything he knew about Lori had been told to him by Jason. He said that he now regretted the crime since he had learned that Rochelle was never really in danger from Lori. His instinct to protect her from abuse was sparked by his own experience growing up in an abusive household. He said that he had empathized with Rochelle's struggles. And he said that though he had love for Rochelle, Jason had descended into a complete obsession with her. At one point, he had suggested murdering a guy named Ian that Rochelle had also dated. During his relationship with Rochelle, he had begun to see less of her after she returned to school from summer break. He would send her long love letters, and sometimes she would write back only a few sentences as a response. It was obvious she was pulling away from him, but Jason convinced himself that their relationship was dying because of Lori. Brian admitted that he had been a little doubtful of the abuse claims, but that he trusted Jason completely, and Jason had obsessed over the topic so much that eventually Brian began to believe that Lori had to die. At the time that Brian had agreed to the plan, his life had been on a downward spiral. He had been experiencing a lot of financial problems and depression. He thought that if he could get rid of Lori and save Rochelle from the alleged abuse, that he would be sacrificing himself for a noble cause. In the end, he expressed great regret that he allowed himself to be manipulated into murdering an innocent woman. Jason was called to the stand next. Now that he was actually on trial for murder, any plan of protecting Rochelle went out the window. If his version of the story was true, then it was likely at this point he was realizing that he too had been manipulated into this murder. He claimed that Rochelle knew about all of the attempts and had been very involved in the murder plan. He explained that she had initially broached the topic months prior to the actual murder. He said Rochelle had been very paranoid about their planning discussions and took great precautions. According to him, it had seemed obvious that this was not a joke for her. She had also given him forewarning that the weekend of the murder would be a good time to act as Lori would be spending the weekend home alone. He claimed that Rochelle had given them specific information on how to get inside the house. Jason's version of the night of the murder was very similar to Brian's with just a few small differences. Brian had stated that at one point both men had attempted to smother Lori, but Jason argued that only Brian had done the physical act of murder and that it had made him sick. He said that on Sunday, Rochelle had called him for an update upon returning to her house, and Jason explained what had happened. He said Rochelle had reacted with little emotion other than sadness that the minivan had been destroyed because she was hoping to get it after her mom died. If that's true, that is beyond cold-hearted. He said she had then promised to go around her house and wipe down everything to get rid of any fingerprints. Jason explained how a few days later, Rochelle had called him from school bawling. This was a day in which Rochelle had been summoned to the school office and told she would be going home to get news from the police. Jason had rushed over to the school to provide support. As soon as Rochelle and he were alone, she had stopped crying and said, quote, I told you I was a good actress. Rochelle's defense attorney would try to insinuate that Jason had lied in implicating Rochelle so that he could get out when he was 42 and still young enough to, quote, pick up teenage girls. He also called Jason a coward for being unable to kill Lori, which is a really weird tactic. The defense attorney also forced Jason to read his many love letters to Rochelle in open court, including sexually explicit aspects and Jason's mention of his own previous mental health problems involving self-harm. I'm not sure why that would be allowed. The interrogation video of Rochelle admitting to being involved in the murder plan and also admitting she had lied about it previously was also shown in court. The defense tried to argue that the detectives who questioned Rochelle in the interrogation had broken the law by questioning her without her dad and by exaggerating or lying about the evidence. However, Rochelle's dad had expressly given permission for his daughter to be questioned and was not legally required to be there. And the concept of exaggerating evidence or otherwise to a suspect, though a lot of people see it as unethical, is a completely legal tactic often used by detectives to catch the unintelligent and guilty in their own lies. 
The psychologist who had questioned Rochelle was the first defense witness for her. She essentially argued that Rochelle was not smart enough or developed enough to realize that by griping about her mom to Jason, that she may be accidentally insinuating that she wanted her mother dead. She also argued that Rochelle's confusion was what led her to admit her guilt in the murder plot to the detectives. She wasn't actually guilty, she was confused. I know I've accidentally confessed to planning a murder a time or two. She said Rochelle had actually been pressured into believing that she was guilty, and that's why her confession was so believable. She believed it even though it wasn't true. She admitted that this profile was gleaned entirely through self-reporting, a method that even first-year psych students know to be very skeptical of. Other than the psychologist, Rochelle didn't have much in the way of defense witnesses. She ended up declining to testify in her own defense, and the final witness came to the stand. It was her dad, Carl. He did not have much to contribute other than the argument that if Rochelle was involved, she could have let Brian use her key to access the house. He also argued that Rochelle never told him about any abuse, which actually was just more testimony to his daughter's deceitful nature. By this point, there had been several separate witnesses who had testified about very specific abuse stories that she had told them. In closing statements, the prosecutor laid out one of the most important pieces of evidence. This had come from Rochelle herself. Before anyone other than police knew that Lori's van had been found, Rochelle had told several people that her mom had probably been in a drunk driving accident, the exact same scenario that the boys had intended to stage. Now, if Lori had been a big drinker, this would make some sense, but she wasn't at all. And jumping to this conclusion, is entirely unbelievable. Rochelle explained it was because she had seen a wine bottle in the kitchen, but this conclusion is basically the opposite of Occam's razor, so Occam's hatchet? The prosecution also argued that Jason had told the truth about every aspect of the crime as soon as he confessed. Everything he told them had been backed up with evidence which he had led them to. He had done this willingly before being offered a plea deal and had implicated Rochelle during this discussion. He had also agreed to wear wire to implicate his best friend. It seemed to the prosecution that he had done this primarily due to a guilty conscience. He said he had been feeling sick ever since the murder. At the time, he hadn't been offered anything, so he had absolutely nothing to gain from throwing his best friend and the girl he loved under the bus. The prosecutors argued that Rochelle should be found guilty of the same crimes as the two men because she had actively participated in the conspiracy. They argued that without Rochelle's assistance, the two men may never have acted. They wouldn't have known when Laurie would be home alone or how to get inside easily. Once the prosecution rested, the defense delivered rebuttal. They argued that Rochelle was a caring person who had loved her mother and who felt guilty that she had mindlessly and accidentally led her boyfriend to believe she wanted her mom dead. They stated that Rochelle's reason for originally lying to detectives about talking to Jason on that Saturday was not her trying to give him an alibi. It was done because she couldn't bring herself to believe that he had done it, so she tried to convince herself that she had talked to him on the phone. The defense stated that the detectives had badgered Rochelle into confessing so that they could close the case the case for which they already had two parties admitting guilt. The defense, for some reason, chose to focus on Jason as the most guilty out of the bunch. They called him a child predator and that he was the only one with a motive. They said he was a deranged psychopath. Jason, the one who had cracked under the pressure and turned himself in within a few days of the crime. They called him a, quote, lying sack of snitch. The one person whose story of the night of the murder had been entirely corroborated by hard evidence. He said that since Jason is a liar, it must mean that Rochelle is innocent. I feel like he may not have done well on the deductive reasoning portion of the SATs, because that is a weird leap. They chose to omit Brian from this argument, even though Brian had admitted to actually physically doing the murder. They called Jason the devil, even though they had previously said he was too cowardly to kill someone. I feel like the devil could probably kill a guy. The closing argument was all over the place. The defense lawyer was essentially throwing shit at the wall to see what would stick. And the 
The prosecution was all over the defense's statement in their own rebuttal. They quickly pointed out that the defense had continuously described Jason as a molester and predator and never mentioned Brian, even though Brian had also admitted to having a sexual relationship with a teenager 10 years younger than himself. I theorize that they weren't mentioning Brian primarily because he had not thrown Rochelle under the bus like Jason had. While the defense's closing statement had been full of emotion and anger directed at Jason, the prosecution did a bare-bones closing, just the facts. And finally, the trial was over. On February 8th, court broke for jury deliberation. After five days, the jury came back and said they were unable to reach a verdict, and a mistrial was declared. Afterwards, the jury revealed their feelings on the matter. While they believed that Rochelle had lied about her mom's abuse, they also believed that the investigators had coerced her confession because why would she say she hadn't done it and later admit she'd been involved? Even though it's exactly what Jason did, the person that they all believed was the most culpable. After the mistrial, Rochelle went back to prison to await her future. However, within a few days, the judge gave a lot of thought and decided to completely dismiss the indictment against Rochelle. She did believe that investigators had coerced her admittance of guilt and that the prosecutor hadn't presented a strong case. She was upset that the investigators had lied to Rochelle during the interrogation, even though, as previously stated, and any true crime fan knows, this is completely legal in America, and you see it on basically every crime show ever. The judge lowered Rochelle's bail and told the state they had two weeks to file new charges or it was over. After 14 months behind bars, Rochelle was free, but she didn't go back to Craig. People there were very suspicious of her, probably because they knew her. She never really did go back home, even though her father did. Most of the townspeople sympathized with him, even the majority who believed that Rochelle was probably guilty. Rochelle's own uncle, Don, Lori's brother, later appeared on a dateline on this case and expressed his view that Rochelle was probably guilty and that he wasn't sure if he could ever forgive her. Trooper Claus, who had worked on the investigation and had known the Watermans a long time, was extremely unhappy about how the case ended. He believed wholeheartedly that Rochelle was guilty, and this was actually the last case of his entire trooper career. He decided to hang it up after this because he was so disappointed. He thought the police work and the prosecution had actually done a really good job. But the verdict had been surprising and obviously disappointing. It would take years, but the Ketchikan DA eventually decided to indict Rochelle on first and second degree murder, as well as criminally negligent homicide. It wouldn't be until 2011 that she was back at trial. She was now 22. She had moved basically as far away from Alaska as possible in the interim and had lived in Florida for the previous five years. During voir dire in Ketchikan, it became obvious that the town was still very affected by the case and many questioned believed that Rochelle was guilty right off the bat. For those of you that don't know, Ketchikan is really close to Craig. The second trial ended up being moved to Anchorage, and the trial began in January 2011. Brian showed up to testify, but Jason refused, and his original taped testimony would be played. Prior to the second trial, a panel of judges reviewed the evidence and deemed that Rochelle's taped confession was inadmissible. They decided this based on the detectives questioning her who urged her to be honest and it would be easier for her, they deemed this as a threat of a harsh penalty if she lied, which, I mean, that's just stating facts. Just my thoughts. Surprisingly though, in the second trial, while she was found innocent of first and second degree murder, she was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide. While no one thought Rochelle had actually done the murder, Obviously she hadn't. The jury all agreed that she had been extremely negligent in allowing the murder to happen. They believed she did have prior knowledge of it and did nothing to stop it. 
Many were happy that she was finally receiving a punishment, a felony no less, and Rochelle responded in no way, but her dad was angry. He would see her as innocent forever. She ended up being sentenced to just three years in prison, including time served. And counting in good behavior sentence reduction, she would need to serve less than one more year in jail. Her defense decided to appeal this case, saying that she should have originally been charged in juvenile court. However, the law states that a 16-year-old charged with murder will be tried as an adult in Alaska. The appeal took many more years to be decided, but was ultimately rejected in early 2015. Rochelle would be going back to prison in the end of August of that year to serve the rest of her time. From my research, it appears that she ended up serving about eight or nine more months in prison, a punishment that many Alaskans saw as too lenient and too late. I'm interested to hear what you guys think on this case because I've heard vastly different opinions. Some people think that she's 100% guilty and others think that she was completely manipulated into this. So get at me on the emails. I would love to hear from you. I have my own opinion, which may have leaked through this uh, episode a little bit, but I tried to keep it civil. I'm interested to see if Rochelle gets up to any more shenanigans in the future. It's only been a few years since she got out of prison, so time will tell. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I will talk to you guys again in a few weeks.